Hello and welcome to this AJPH monthly podcast. This month we will be discussing the very worrisome epidemic of hepatitis C that is currently occurring in the United States. We will see with the CDC epidemiologist Alice Asher that the epidemic is exacerbated by another epidemic of injection drug use, in particular of opioids, and why it is affecting young, non-Hispanic white populations in the Appalachian region. And with Dr. John Wong, clinical decision maker from Tufts University, we will discuss how the availability of effective treatments may have transformed the prognosis of newly infected persons. But before discussing with Alice Asher and John Wong, we will discuss with Professor Kimberly Page from the University of New Mexico how likely it is that, in a foreseeable future, the epidemic of hepatitis C could be controlled by a vaccine. I am Alfredo Morabia, the editor-in-chief of the journal. This is January 8, 2018. Let's call Kim Page, who is chief of the Division of Epidemiology, Biostatistics and Preventive Medicine at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center in Albuquerque. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alfredo. <laughs> How are you? I'm very well today. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. And where are you now? I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And is it as cold in Albuquerque as it is in New York today? No. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully, no. I can still go for a bike ride. All right. All right. So you're fortunate. Okay, uh, Kim, um, let's go right into, you know, the, the main issue, the, the main point of your editorial in the, the February issue of the journal. I mean, you are advocating a vaccine to prevent hep C, hepatitis C, and uh, because the current approach is insufficient. Can you explain to me where does first your interest to hepatitis C come from? Oh, Alfredo, I've been researching hepatitis C since 1990, when the antibodies were first, you know, identified. And I see now that it accounts, this infection, for more deaths than any other reported infectious disease, more than HIV even. It affects people who were infected many years ago, this baby boomer cohort that we hear about, but it's also really affecting many young people who are becoming infected at greater and greater rates these days. We're seeing incidence rates going over 20, 25% in many places in the U.S. So what's, what's going on among this uh, young generation and baby, baby boomer? Why, why do they get hepatitis C? Hepatitis C is a really infectious virus. It is easy to transmit. So the baby boomer cohort was infected many years ago before we even identified the virus and knew how it was being spread. But now we have this opioid epidemic, which is being tied into these increases as more and more people are becoming dependent on opioids, and especially young people, they're transitioning to injecting. 
And this injection drug use, these exposures from needles and blood, blood exposures, because it's a blood-borne virus, are accounting for more and more infections all over the United States, especially in rural areas. And how do we know that uh, the incidence is increasing uh, that fast? Uh, which way do we have? Do we measure mortality, morbidity? Uh, what are the means of surveillance that we have? Well, surveillance is, is challenging in the United States and everywhere, actually. Hepatitis C surveillance is currently based on reporting by labs to local health departments who then report to the CDC. Uh, those chains of events require many resources. But people don't all get tested for hep C. And only acute hepatitis C, people who are symptomatic, maybe they have, uh, they, they get like a symptomatic flu-like illness. Only those cases are what's used to track incident infection. And only 5% of hepatitis C infections are actually symptomatic. So we literally only detect the tip of the iceberg. But even these acute infections have been going up in mint for the last few years. So, Underreporting is a result of both under-resourced surveillance and underestimation of cases, which makes it very complex to understand and really respond to Hep C as a public health threat. So, how close to the true incidence are we now? Do you think? <laughs> I I think that that's very difficult to say. Uh, there there was some wonderful work done in Boston that showed that the that the number of cases that get reported to this CDC is still even a small fraction of those that people detect in some states. Um, that was from a group out of Massachusetts. So I, I don't think we really know what the overall incidence is. We don't have a systematic surveillance system for hepatitis C. And until we put some things in place, maybe sentinel populations, more cohort research studies, or perhaps use some new laboratory techniques to develop, to identify new infections, it's hard to say what the true incidence is in the United States. So this, uh, these problems with surveillance seems to be a, a good argument in favor of uh, the development of vaccine, right? Oh, I think so. Yes. So if we had a vaccine, what would you do? Which population would you vaccinate? Uh, which would be your targets? And uh, how would you proceed? Well, well, I'm proposing, first of all, that a vaccine would really add to our, our toolbox, our prevention toolbox. Once people get hepatitis C, they can be cured. We have new curative treatments, but these treatments are extremely expensive. We know that there are other ways to prevent hep C, like syringe service programs and addiction pharmacotherapies. But adding a vaccine, an efficient, even a moderately, uh, a moderately effective vaccine, 50% or more, could reduce incidence by 75% in 20 years or more in a high risk that would be an injecting population. It would be lower cost, reach more people, and have the highest impact in higher, in these high risk groups. We can't get treatment to everyone. In many places, syringe services don't exist. And opioid treatments also are, are challenging for some populations, for instance, these rural areas. A vaccine could be deployed effectively in many areas of high risk populations. 
But isn't it like a HPV that you need to give the vaccine before people get exposed? So uh, in this case, people should be get the vaccine before they start actually using needles and uh, injecting drugs. That would be ideal, I think. Just like HPV, as uh, hepatitis C is highly infectious. It's very easy to capture to get. Within two years of injecting, 25 or more percent of people already have hepatitis C. So targeting them early would be effective. Just like HPV, hep C vaccine would reduce hepatocellular carcinoma and other comorbid situations like uh, liver, liver fibrosis that occur with infection. So targeting younger people would be a good strategy. If that's not possible, going after these high-risk populations would would be essential. Mm-hmm. So, so we're talking here optimally about a, a universal vaccine that would be done in young teenagers or there are some people who'd children. like to see that. Yeah, there are some people who'd like to see that vaccines. You know, vaccines are still widely used to prevent disease, and this is another disease we could prevent, which is affecting young people at greater and greater rates. Targeting high-risk people or targeting having a more universal approach could both work. Targeting the highest-risk group would have the the most immediate impact, and coupled with treatment and some of these other prevention tools, we could really see the effects very quickly. And so do we have a vaccine? We have a vaccine that's being tested, but we don't have a vaccine yet that is for use. Uh, hepatitis C is a very tricky virus, and uh, only one hepatitis C vaccine trial, uh, which is the one that we've been leading in Baltimore, San Francisco, and Albuquerque, has been initiated so when will we know? Will we have some results that maybe uh, can be translated into uh, practice? Well, again, I'll, I'll point out that we've had one trial. Uh, many vaccines require many trials to hone in on it. This particular trial will, uh, has, uh, will be ending and we'll have the results sometime after, maybe in the fall of next year. That's what we're shooting for. We're no longer enrolling. We're following people. This vaccine has been tested in uh, people who are actively injecting, so they're at very high risk of hepatitis C. It's tricky, though, um, making a vaccine for this virus because it's a, it's a very, very smart virus is very hard. And I'd love to see more work being done in this area as we have with other vaccines, like you mentioned, the HPV vaccine or an HIV vaccine. And so what are the obstacles to go in this direction? What, what are the public health authorities, uh, the <laughs> science, you know, what are they waiting uh, to go in this direction? What are their arguments against it? I mean, they may be... Uh, oh, that's a, that's a really good question. <laughs> well, first of all, some of the scientific issues. First, hepatitis C is an RNA virus which means that it replicates really quickly and it evades the immune system. There's also multiple subtypes. So these factors make vaccine design challenging. But we do know, and we have evidence from our studies, 
that hepatitis C can, that people can mount an immune response that's protective. 25% or more of people spontaneously clear hep C, and some people do this repeatedly. So this protective immunity needs to be harnessed, the CD4 and CD8 T-cell responses, that can really induce these responses so people can clear the virus. The other challenge, of course, is testing the vaccine. We're currently, the one that we're testing is in people who are actively at risk, um, people who inject drugs, and they're a challenging population to work with, but have the most need. Um, I'd say that the final challenge is political will. As in all things public health, the need to test more vaccine candidates is needed, and we have to have resources to inform vaccine development, to test these things, to run the trials. Some people do believe that, you know, perhaps we don't need a vaccine because we have these treatments, but the treatments are remarkably expensive, difficult to access, and really are not likely to make the kind of dent that a vaccine will in terms of prevention, preventing new infections. So I think the need has never been greater, right? I mean, let's go back to where we started. Hep C currently accounts for more deaths than any other infectious disease. So Even though it is probably underestimated. So significantly underestimated. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're very convincing, Kim. Thank you Thank so you. much. The core paper in this uh, special section of AJPH is by Alice Asher and colleagues. They are reporting a comparison of U.S. trends in rates of injection drug use of opioids and of acute hepatitis C infections. I'm calling Alice K. Asher, who is an epidemiologist with the Epidemiology and Surveillance Branch Division of Viral Hepatitis at CDC. Hi, Alice. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I mean, it's, you know, it's December 28th, so I'm doing as we can do on this date. But tell me, where are you now? Um, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so we are talking about uh, the paper that uh, you published this month in in, uh, AJPH, and uh, you are reporting a comparison of U.S. trends in rates of injection drug use of opioids and of acute hepatitis C infection. Can you explain to us what motivated you uh, to start with to conduct this analysis? Yeah, um, so um, in 2015, CDC researchers identified this link among four Appalachian states, and we wanted to see if this correlation would extend to the nation as a whole. And so what, which were those four states? Um, the initial four states were Tennessee, West Virginia, Virginia, and Kentucky. And so in those four states, uh, how, what are the evidence that the two epidemics, the opioid injection and the hepatitis C infection, are really linked? 
Well, what we've seen first in those four states and then now on a national level is that our analyses show substantial and simultaneous increases in the number of new hepatitis C infections and in reported opioid injection among persons who are admitted to substance use disorder treatment programs. And these increases are mirror each other, not just at the national and state level, but by age, by sex, and by race and ethnicity. But, uh, I mean, those are correlated, but how do you know they're linked? I mean, that, that the two are, you know, uh, causally connected. Well, we've long known that the primary cause of hepatitis C infection in the United States is injection drug use. And that's been shown for, we've been, we've known that for a good 20, 30 years. But I think, um, over time, since a height in the 1990s, as we've learned to control the blood supply and as some interventions and overall decrease in injection drug use were occurring, we saw simultaneously decreases in hepatitis C infection. However, starting in about 2004, the United States began to see an increase in injection drug use, and at the same time, hepatitis C rates, which previously had been on the decline, first leveled off, and then in about 2008 started increasing substantially. Mm -hmm. But uh, is this epidemic of hepatitis C going along with uh, the, the epidemic of HIV, for example, which seems to have the same type of uh, uh, contamination pathway? To a degree, and in fact, right now, um, we're... Um, HIV infections linked to injection drug use had seen a steep, steep decline, are now leveling off, and in some areas of the country, they have seen an increase. However, while they have similar risk factors, hepatitis C um, is much more infectious. So in the injection drug process, hepatitis C can be con can be transmitted through not just syringe sharing, but sharing of needles, of rinse water, of cookers, of tourniquets, basically any of the equipment that's used within the drug injection process, they um, can transmit hepatitis C. So we see rates of hepatitis C increase much faster among people who are injecting drugs than we see it for HIV. I see. And uh, does the... Does this correspond to specific subgroups of the population? Because, uh, I mean, IV drug use, uh, not so much HIV, uh, hepatitis C. Which are the subgroups of the population which are the primary, um, primarily affected by these two epidemics? Yes, yeah, so we've seen, as I mentioned, increases in both hepatitis C and opioid injection across the nation. But these increases are really most dramatic in young people under the age of 40, non-Hispanic whites, and women. Among women, rates of hepatitis C infection increased from 2004 to 2014 by 250%. And among non-Hispanic whites, we saw acute hepatitis C infections during this time period increase by 300%. This is, this is huge. And do we know why uh, non-Hispanic whites are particularly affected? There's 
several reasons, but um, we think a lot of it has to do with um, increases in opioid prescribing for non-cancer pain. So that's been started in about the late 1990s, and that was in part because of a more heightened recognition of chronic pain by the medical community. Um, and one significant consequence of this change in opioid prescribing was a concomitant escalation in their misuse. And so one of the regions where which had the largest number of opioid prescriptions written per capita was Appalachia, which it has is predominantly a non-Hispanic white population. So this region witnessed a huge increase in diversion to non-medical use of prescription opioids and then sub subsequent injection drug use. And then these problems are really exacerbated because these areas have a lack of access to evidence-based substance use disorder treatment, um, like medical assist medication-assisted treatment such as Suboxone and Methadone, as well as a lack of community-based prevention programs such as syringe services programs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this is part of uh, this uh, epidemic of despair in the American heartland. And we've been talking about. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so, uh, Alice, what are the implications of your findings for public health policy? There is a, a case in point in Indiana, no? I mean, which was a quite conservative state uh, with respect to uh, syringe exchanges, etc., and uh, they actually uh, uh, were able to control an epidemic of HIV, hepatitis C, and by uh, implementing uh, needle exchanges, right? Exactly. And the Indiana model is something we frequently point to. And I will say that other states have followed this model, particularly Appalachia. We've seen a huge growth in syringe services programs in some of the areas that need them most, such as Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia, although there's still a huge demand. But these programs have done a really great job in part by not just providing people with clean sterile injection equipment, which, of course, is really essential for disease transmission, but providing what we think of as a one-stop shop for people to access drug treatment services, to get overdose prevention education, naloxone distribution, treatment for hepatitis C virus, vaccinations for hepatitis A and B, as well as access to primary care, mental health care, and, the, and ways to act, address the many comorbidities that impact people who inject drugs. Mm -hmm. And uh, to, to stay in the Indiana example, I think the current Surgeon General, uh, Dr. Adams, was uh, instrumental in implementing those strategies in Indiana, right? That is true, and we're really confident in his appointment that these programs will continue to flourish throughout the United States. Great. One last question, Alice. Maybe this is a little bit out of your expertise, but I imagine the people affected by hepatitis C and uh, opioid um, injection, uh, they are probably dependent on Medicaid mostly? Yeah, so... When we do research that looks at people's ability to pay for services, we find that um, dependence on Medicaid is incredibly important for helping people access the services they need most. And I have not done the analyses, and it, yes, it is out of my um, area of expertise, but 
it is um, likely that many of the areas that have done the best in being able to effectively address their um, population's needs in terms of getting medication-assisted therapy and other related services are also finding ways to help provide them through payer services such as Medicaid. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, to to achieve all the service developments that you, you just described, uh, a strong Medicaid and uh, an expanded Medicaid seems to be really crucial. Yeah, I think many groups have put out policy statements suggesting that um, anything less than, you know, really positive coverage of these these services really will have a negative impact on the ongoing opioid crisis. And it's really an important consideration for policymakers. Alice, thank you very much. Thank you for your time and for this uh, very nice and very informative and very important study. Well, thank you for your time and your interest. I really appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm now reaching out to John B. Wong, who is an MD and Chief of the Division of Clinical Decision-Making at Tufts Medical Center, Boston. Hi, John. Hi, Alfredo. So where are you now? I am at home. And where is home? Uh, Home is in Boston. And how's the weather now there? Do you you have (laughs) snow? (laughs) It's a bit chilly. Um, I think it was close to zero and perhaps below zero with the wind chill. Wow. Uh, that's Fahrenheit. <laughs> so that, did you predict this weather? I did not. <laughs> so let's talk about things you, you do predict. You know, mm-hmm. in 2000, you know, eight years ago, uh, you published in AJPH a paper in which you were estimating the future morbidity, mortality, and cost associated with the hepatitis C in the United States. Can you explain to me why eight years ago you were motivated to do such an analysis? Certainly, Alfredo. Um, you know, I've, I've had a long-standing interest in hepatitis C uh, ever since I had a, a patient uh, who was diagnosed with it back in the early 1990s when the first diagnostic test became available. And uh, as I've learned more about it, it is the epitome of one of my favorite quotes from Sir William Osler, uh, and that is, medicine is a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. And the reason I say that is what has emerged um, over the past several decades is that uh, not all patients with hepatitis C progress on to develop cirrhosis, and that it takes a, a fairly long time for most of those individuals to develop that longstanding um, scarring of the liver that leads to the serious complications from it. And back in the um, N. Haynes, we knew that in the early 1990s, late 1980s, that uh, roughly about one in uh, 33 Americans um, had hepatitis C. And because I knew that this was a disease that typically takes decades to progress, the question was, you know, with that number of people, uh, millions of people, 
And knowing that it takes several decades to regress, what might happen in the future? And so, um, as you well know, in, in the American Journal of Public Health, we um, published our paper that projected what might happen to the non-institutionalized population in the U.S. over the next two or three decades, because we thought maybe this was going to be a public health problem. Mm -hmm. And so you assume that the progression would be linear. Well, we actually had different stages for um, liver cirrhosis. We developed something called a Markov model where people start with minimal amounts of scarring in the liver, but could progress on to moderate levels of progression. And then um, with moderate progression, with moderate cirrhosis, they could progress on to what we call compensated cirrhosis. And then Once you've developed that compensated cirrhosis, you're at risk for the more serious complications such as liver cancer and decompensated cirrhosis. So not so, quite linear. And uh, But how worrisome were, was your estimate then for what where we would be today? Yes, yeah, so um, the um, model projected uh, what might happen to the population in the absence of treatment. And what we found that was that during this current decade, from 2010 to 2019, um, the U.S. population would experience um, 720,000 years of decompensated cirrhosis and paracellular carcinoma, and it would cost somewhere between 21 to 54 billion dollars because of productivity losses. And there'd be a, a loss of 1.8 million years of life among those younger than 65 years of age. So let me repeat, 700,000 uh, years of life with hepatitis of, C? Of, well, living, so 720,000 years of people uh, living with um, decompensated cirrhosis and uh, liver cancer. And billions, and cost in billions, right? And cost in billions mm -hmm. due to medical care as well as lost productivity lives. But um, in terms of years of life lost, about 1.8 million for people who are younger than the age of 65. Mm -hmm. Huge. Yes. And so how does this estimate that you did eight years ago compare to what has been observed in since then? Yeah, so, um, you know, one of my favorite phrases is there are no experts of the past. We, we make our predictions and then we see what happened. Of course. So uh, we made our predictions in 2000 and the CDC published a paper uh, that showed that in 2013, They estimated 19,368 deaths in the United States due to hepatitis C. And remarkably, our prediction for 2013 was nearly spot on with 19,404 deaths. Wow. So, uh, so, so things evolved as you had predicted or have there been some changes? Yeah, so, you know, what's really happened uh, remarkably uh, over the past 20 years is this movement from uh, a 
drug treatment for hepatitis C um, that was very difficult for patients to take and adhere to. And the other part of the uh, science of uncertainty and the art of probability is that not everybody would have responded to that treatment. We were talking in the 2000s about something like um, 30 to 40 percent sustained viral response rates. And over the past um, five years, we have moved into now an all oral therapy so that um, uh, we can essentially cure individuals with hepatitis C uh, of their disease with uh, uh, all oral set therapy, which uh, can be taken over a much shorter duration than the old therapy and had much fewer uh, side effects. So the, the the better treatment should have uh, uh, led to a lower uh, number of deaths than what you had predicted. But what about the epidemic of um, uh, of IV uh, opioid usage? I mean, did yes. you factor this in your prediction too? So we wanted to be conservative in our prediction and. Um, so we wanted to simply model the uh, what might happen to the people with known hepatitis C in the early 1990s. Uh, because again, we could not project necessarily forward what might happen to the incidence of hepatitis C. There's some other researchers, though, who did make such predictions and projections, and they estimated a constant incidence of uh of hepatitis C based on uh, data from 2010. And what has emerged uh, again with the opioid epidemic in the United States uh, is uh, indeed not necessarily a constant incidence of hepatitis C, but actually a rising incidence of hepatitis C, particularly among 20 to 30-year-olds within the United States. I see. So, so what happened is that we had an increased incidence because of this linked uh, epidemics of hepatitis C and uh, opioids uh, usage. But on the other hand, for those who develop hepatitis C, the future is brighter today than it used to be. Certainly, um, Alfredo. The um, the projection models had all assumed a constant incidence, so that the peak of the burden of hepatitis C would be confined to this particular decade. And for people who inject drugs who may contract hepatitis C, um, the future is bright in the sense that if they are diagnosed, if they seek treatment, and if they adhere to treatment, it is possible to eradicate uh, the hepatitis C infection in them long before they should develop any of the chronic complications from liver disease. And so, John, uh, to, to conclude, what, what do you think is the priority uh, public health policy that uh, uh, should be implemented? Yeah, um, we now uh, do not have a vaccine available for hepatitis C but we have relatively inexpensive, simple screening methods um, we have that are very accurate. 
We have readily available uh, antiviral drug treatments for hepatitis C. So it's really trying to organize uh, from a public health perspective, from a population health perspective, uh, an organized approach, uh, a healthcare system that can seek these individuals who are uh, infected with hepatitis C, um, not just among the people who inject drugs, but also the birth cohort uh, of individuals born between 1945 and 1965, um, which comprise perhaps two-thirds of the individuals uh, by CDC estimates who have a uh, hepatitis C but are currently asymptomatic with it. Um, we need a coordinated national program to seek test and treat these individuals because it is the most common bloodborne infection here in the United States. And with the rise in the opioid epidemic, it's very important that we seek and test and treat these individuals to stem that new wave of the incidence of hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this makes a, a lot of sense. John, thank you very much for your time, for answering my question. And, uh, Have a great day. Thank you, Alfredo, and thank you for your interest and your time. It's been a pleasure. Note that to be immediately informed about the papers soon to be published in AJPH or about calls for papers, follow me or follow the journal on Twitter. The trash, slightly psychedelic rock has been composed by Francis Jacob, Thank you for listening. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at AJPH.org or subscribe on the podcast app on your phone or tablet. <laughs>